Hello, everyone. This is Airy in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Stoked you're here. Today, another episode with my man, Alex Ebert. Alex is the front man for that band that you know, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. Um, Yeah, he's a musician and philosopher, I would say. Deep thinker. Dude has lots of time to think. A very interesting Instagram and uh, Substack follow couldn't recommend it more the bad guru and it's interesting that he calls himself the bad guru because he is a terrible guru um i love his work and it's great to talk to him on this episode we dive into all kinds of things including ai and its implications in art and or its implications for like how we have learned to consume consumerist creations like creative creative things that were designed to be sold to us um we also talk about unactualized passion in the world and how it gets misguided um and we talk about a bunch of other stuff it's as always very interesting and uh, it's a wander of a philosophical wander so Without further ado, give you a little bit of Alex's music, one of my favorite songs of his, and then we'll dive into it. Um, And just to plug my own shtick here, lately I have been doing lots of philosophical coaching, specifically with men, and specifically around their relationships and communication. And it is a niche that I find myself going deeper and deeper and being more and more well-equipped to advise people on. So... If you are looking for better relationships in your life, which I think we all are, and this is an area of growth that we all should be striving to improve in all the time, how we relate to each other and ourselves and the world at large, it's um, it's a pretty all-encompassing, how would I say, it's an all-encompassing subject, how we relate, and... I'm not looking to solve problems. I am looking for joy and relating brings that to me. So I hope that same thing for yourself. So check out airyintheair.com slash coaching. There's a link in the description below. Um, It's been pretty rewarding work. Would love to hear from you there. Uh, Without further ado, here we go. Alex Ebert, my man. Here we go. Trick me into doing battle Calling out fake up Wanna get me rattled Wanna pull me back behind the fence with the cattle Building your lenses Digging your trenches Put me on the front line Leave me with a dumb mind With no defenses But your defenses If you can't stand to feel the pain Then you are senseless Since this I've grown up some different kind of fight And when the darkness comes Let it inside you Your darkness is shining my darkness is shining Everything in myself 
Okay, Alex, thanks for being here. Welcome back. Nice to see you. Good to see you too. Okay, so let's jump in. Why don't you uh why don't you tell tell me about this David Guetta thing? Uh, because I don't really know exactly what the details of it are. So let's have that as a jumping off point. Oh, sure. David Guetta. My uh my good friend David Guetta. <laughs> I think he's worth studying um in general. Uh if you take a look at his um um what was it um well i'll jump into the m&m thing so he he you know goes on to chat gpt and he says uh, write me a rap in the style of m&m and then he goes to another piece of ai which spits out audio and he puts in the chat gpt rap and it spits out that rap in the voice of m&m and then he takes the voice of Eminem as a stem and puts it over some shitty piece of house music. And then the crowd just goes bananas. Um, and he just starts crushing it. And then there's an interview with David Guetta. And they're like, you know, so tell me about this Eminem thing. He's like, oh, yeah, Eminem, bro. I couldn't believe it, how it worked. You know, he had, he, he, we're in this state of, and, and Guetta is like this perfect, uh, this perfect case study of the post-ironic, ironic realist, sort of the this age of, of coming out on the other side of the butthole of irony into just pure earnest. There's nothing but just pure earnest mainstream sentiment within, I think, Gen Z. And there's an ironic realism where everything is ironic and so now everything is earnest. And it's this capitalist sort of earnest uh, 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 truthfulness to Ghetto. Like if you listen to him talk about, it, there's no sense in which he's aware that this could be some, you know, like a whack move or, or, or that he's ever sold out. If you watch his tribute to George Floyd, that's actually the best video to watch of David Ghetto. He's, um, he's on top of like the Empire State Building or something. And he's doing like a fundraiser thing and he's like, you know, I'm just thinking about George Floyd and there's a lot of uh, bad things in the world and it'd be great if we could all come together. And so last night I made this track. This is for George Fa Floyd family. Uh, shout out to George Floyd. And then he starts playing this like house song and it's like, I have a dream. <laughs> you know, it's just, he's, he's taking the entire Martin Luther King, I have a dream speech and putting it over this really like shitty house track. And you see the the numbers sort of ticking up of how many people are like sort of donating. And you have to see it to sort of grasp or grok the earnest and like like total unawareness, like no self-awareness as to like that this uh, this is a total misappropriation of uh, uh, of Martin Luther King, a total sort of, reading the room really poorly in terms of the way that he's speaking about George Floyd and the way he's calling for peace, everything about it is so wrong. And yet there's no, um, no understanding of that sort of wrongness. Same with the Eminem thing. And we can look at his appropriation of Eminem as like this really weird, uh, super capitalist move and and super cringe. But I can, I can pretty much guarantee you that within the next decade, uh, we're going to be um, totally immune to the cringe factor of these sorts of things. It's like, you know, I grew up in the 90s and there was such a thing called selling out. 
and now uh, Kendrick Lamar's uh, American Express's spokesperson. It's a totally different landscape. Capitalism has completely gobbled up vis-a-vis -vis irony. And that's the amazing thing about irony. So I'm going on a little long here, but, and I think with AI too, there is this, this sense in which irony is so prevalent that it's nowhere. And that the only thing left is, is earnestness. And that the only thing that is worthy of your trust are those things which uh, declare themselves to be capitalist. Because we really can't imagine a world that is non-capitalist, is the idea of capitalist realism, ironic realism, where everything is capitalist. Capitalism is synonymous with human nature. So like when you when someone's like, I'm not doing this for the money, it's like immediately you're going to not trust that person, right? Something's off. And you're going to find out what it is. <laughs> but if someone comes out, like I was watching, there's this boxer, Anthony Joshua, came out uh, on Instagram recently. There was an interview and it blew up. And they're like, you know, what, what gives you the passion for boxing? And he goes, honestly, bro, money. I like making money. And all the comments are like, Anthony, keeping it real. Like everyone's like, this would this is unheard of in the 90s, right? You would, just wouldn't do that. But these days, you simply don't trust someone unless they tell you. Like you're far more likely to trust Lady Gaga than you are Edward Sharp. Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zero is my band, right? Clearly, they're trying to pull some kind of hippie bullshit on you. And it really, oh. it's just some ploy to make a bunch of money and sell a bunch of albums. Lady Gaga, you can trust. Because she's coming out as a pop artist, as a plasticine product. And you know you can trust that because you understand that everything has some sort of capitalist imperative and the people that are admitting it are, are inherently more trustworthy. And, um, and David Guetta is this perfect example of like this, uh, this new paradigm to me. Okay, let me run that back. Yeah, sorry, I, I, I'm just, I just woke up, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it's really interesting. I, I hear that there's a certain familiarity in capitalism that is, you know, the familiarity is trustworthy. It's like once people are so just deep into, or not even deep into by choice or by passion, but just inundated with the capitalist paradigm in which they've been born, raised, and lived that the introduction of a character as a capitalist agent is familiar and trustworthy. And it's interesting the juxtaposition you make at the end between Gaga and Edward Sharp, because I think you're right. Like, ooh, the 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 tender and social justice aware uh heart forward bearded long-haired lead singer is like there's something to be skeptical about there's almost a i the word that comes up is some kind of guru complex that comes up there whereas uh gaga who's chasing money and fame and is blatantly forward about that is is um is is trustworthy but to to go back to the irony versus earnestness you know with the david getta thing i'm i'm struggling to parse out the difference between earnestness and 
ignorance, not quite ignorance, but like uh, just a lack of self-consciousness. Well, then um, you are the perfect. Uh, that's exactly the question in the minds of the 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 gatekeepers of cool, right? They can't tell the difference anymore after the hippie era between uh, earnestness and ignorance. Uh huh. Right. Yeah. And that and that's that's what happened when we suffered the collective embarrassment of the the hippie movement. Mm. Is we were just like we could no longer tell the difference between blind ignorance and uh and uh uh you know um and earnestness or or uh optimism yeah and you're really like you're really there's something incredibly it's being very validated for me here because i find myself skeptical of any how would i say like a uh, any cause that has a script that can be repeated i become not only weary of the repeaters of the script, but the entire cause itself, I uh, become incredibly skeptical of, and that's been the case with with uh, you know so many of the, I would say, social justice causes. Just to put a huge box around that, um, but the difference between earnestness and being able to regurgitate the talking points of a compassionate worldview yeah it seems to fade away for me but let's but let me just steal In terms of being able to tell the difference there well i don't i don't know i i feel like for me i i I don't know, Alex, I'm a pretty keen communicator. I feel like I have a good sense of who's earnest and who is speaking from a place of knowledge and perspective and nuance and care rather than those who want to beat guilt and shame and uh, all of those kinds of things over people's heads. And I'm pretty wary. I have like an allergy for guilt and shame as a motivating emotion for people wanting to instill change in the world so i think yeah and i think i mean i think and i think i do too and i think that one 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 portal out of the conundrum of the question of the differentiation between earnestness and ignorance um which does not erase the ignorant aspect but does let's say, help clarify things in terms of trusting the subjectivity from which the expressions are coming is passion. So someone can be very ignorant about something and yet very passionate about them where you trust that they are being earnest, right? Um, so none of these things are mutually exclusive. Um, I think... That's interesting that you would call it passion because I would say that there is the delineation between earnestness and ignorance is akin to passion versus a fear of ostracization. So how does the fear of ostracization relate to either ignorance or earnestness? 
I would say that the ignorant meme, as we're throwing it around, the unselfconscious meme is a regurgitation of a compassionate talking point as a means to fit in to the good guys, the in-group, the people who are compassionate and good and caring. And that has become the 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 majority that's become like the the biggest group that everyone thinks they should be in right you want to like you don't want to identify as the capitalist although you trust them implicitly but you want to espouse verbally all kinds of anti-capitalist and um you know justice forward heart centered bearded thoughts bearded thoughts <laughs> or not bearded yeah, thoughts yeah i mean you know uh but i guess my 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 point there i don't see them as yeah go ahead my point there is that you know there are i guess as i sit with that for just a moment it's like i think you're right with the passion because i think that there's so much unactualized passion in our world right like just me being an action sports athlete like i feel like i have a outlet for my passion that is super duper real like it's like rocks are hard bodies soft real and i think that there's so much unactualized passion and yeah so, so when, it's repression yeah. I mean, and so, that's, the, that's the case. Yeah. And so when I, you know, the, the case that I made just a moment ago that it's like, it's passion is the ignorance and earnestness is the, is the honesty. Um, You know, I think that the two things actually are like being they're in some kind of feedback loop where the unactualized passion and the desire to fit into the in-group are actually kind of synergizing and it's creating that ignorant, you know, that ignorance as we've kind of defined it thus far. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, the idea that there's some objective truth out there to which we are all scrambling and approaching, I, I, you know, is, is easily thrown into question. What what we can talk about though, or what what I what I can point to is whether or not someone is fully enthralled and committed and overwhelmed by their own viewpoint for a moment. Mm. At which point they are momentarily unconstrained by um, their own self-suppressions, mm. uh, by their own uh, modifiers of expression. Mm -hmm. And so in those moments of passion, they might be expressing something thoroughly ignorant, mm. but they're being honest. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So objectively yeah. ignorant, subjectively honest. Yeah, and that's and, your um, point with Geta that 
his it's it's like to, it's pure it's a pure expression it's that he's pure. having it's a pure expression that he's having yeah and 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 that's the that's the the difficulty with even well i mean it makes it makes analyzing culture very fun but it also makes it very difficult to take a polemic position against or for uh because once once we once we have entered and i think it occurred you know in the last in the age of the internet but i think gen z inherited um such ubiquity of irony through memes and and just the general language of culture um that if you notice if you really like study gen z communication on instagram or wherever there really is a total absence of irony you you actually won't find what we classically categorize as ironic um in terms of their delivery the memes isolated are clearly ironic to a kid that grew up in the 90s but you can tell that the way they're being expressed is where the irony itself is such a given that it reverses itself into an earnest expression um and 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 you see this with the embrace of capitalism with the embrace of coca-cola the embrace of american express the embrace of absolutely any mainstream commercial notion um is itself somehow now viewed as irreverent and a, and a, and a form of irreverence um where resistance itself is reactionary and the only progressive view is embrace so we just embrace whatever is whatever is happening whatever is popular um is the ironically irreverent and rebellious act it's almost a rebellion against rebellion and um and it's part of this sort of embrace of this capitalist authenticity where the real authenticity the real authentic core of behavior is in total uh, embrace in this sort of like capitalist rush of acceptance and um and it's and it's really it's really strange and difficult on the flip side because to to analyze this because on the flip side in the positive so I'm sort of describing this in a, in a way you could sort of pejoratize but in the positive money already runs politics has forever right now you see like really clear examples especially being being throttled by gen z and 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 others that are really at the forefront of the sort of um gender issue um and the trans issue you see the money talking you see the money affecting politics um you see this idea of capitalist realism of really embracing mainstream culture uh actually transforming politics where the vote may indeed become less and less relevant because the the tactic now um you know has been sort of sublated into consumerism itself 
So like voting with your dollar. So you see like, you know, obviously Coca-Cola is a horrible company doing horrible things to the world, but their advertisements are the most inclusive, the most progressive. Um, meanwhile, they're targeting, you know, people of color and uh, who are suffering, um, you know, out of disproportionately from uh, type two diabetes and whatnot because of Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola working very hard to keep uh, themselves and soda as part of the SNAP uh, programs for for food assistance and these sorts of things when health organizations around the world like you have to take these out of the 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 free food pro programs uh, but they fight uh, to make sure that their opponents look like are uh, they're racist and sexist and um, and they win right so it's this marketing thing but it's a very very complex um, sort of notion. But when we think about like, okay, well, what's the end game of democracy? Well, it probably is voting with your money. Um, and the conflation and consolidation of capitalism and democracy has been a long time in the works. And I think we're finally like actually, you know, starting to see it and we will be seeing it even more once we actually, you know, there's like data unions now you can join. And, and once we actually are our data, um, if we can, take a hold of that, we'll actually be seeing ourselves um, like really sort of commanding political power with just our, you know, the the uh, unionized data. So anyway, every, everything, everything's happening at once. And I'm probably going a little far off the map. But um, but I just wanted to show that there is potentially a positive aspect of the full embrace of capitalism, which would some people describe as like the move from capitalism to attentionalism. Um, we're in which just shifting our attention has actually like really serious political implications. Yeah, I appreciate that. Like, um, the positive framing of that and that's very thought provoking. And I, I, uh, I think you're, this is a, this is something I haven't really thought much about the convergence let me, let me put one more let me put let me describe one more thing that may <laughs> stimulate you even even more <laughs> like rub those nipples just a little bit so so uh, uh, similar to the ironic realism where you have so much irony that it sort of sublates into a, a an earnestness if you have so much like well, let's just call it transaction. So in the context of capitalism, where everything becomes a transaction, right? Like we're 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 in the middle of creating a transaction right now, you and I, where the data is being gonna be scraped and packaged and sold. But at a certain point, transaction is gonna be so ubiquitous that almost every like once we get a hold and 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 give our data and have our data bodies sort of uh, 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 having some sense of personhood, where you know, and data unions, as I mentioned, are popping up and whatnot, and whatnot, where basically every interaction we have online, and even just you know, Fitbit and the how many steps we're taking, and all this data scraping that's happening, being repackaged and sold to advertisers to then sell back to us. This whole process, this self, uh, uh, this this cyclical process of producing and then absorbing capital, once that's fully ubiquitous. Um, and transaction is action, that posits sort of like 
you know, this, 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 what I would call just like transactionalism for the, the move from capitalism, you could call it attentionalism where you put your attention, my dogs are barking, sorry, but a move from like this, this move from capitalism and, 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 uh, you know, intermittent transaction or transactivity to just trans like ubiquitous transactivity. Um, suddenly then you are basically a walking, talking political organization. Um, and if you wanted to put a positive spin on it, you're also now a walking, talking commodity. So there are really negative ways to view this that I, I'm more inclined to myself, but there are also, um, ways to view it where you are this walking, talking, uh, pack. Hmm. Okay. I'd love to hear this. That So to, to paint the dystopian picture, I think most of us have seen the social dilemma, Schmachtenberger and Tristan Harris, and it paints a picture of where social media and internet companies have commodified our attention and used the best psychologists, behavioralists, and designers, programmers to create products that are just incredibly addictive and hack our brains and just the like deepest sense of the the statement. Um that is the, you know, the, so far I think that's how we visualize the dystopian attentionalism where it's almost like out of our hands. There's some kind of, you're, you're painting the picture of some kind of positive version of that where we have some kind of agency over that and or uh, we are benefited from our attention as currency. So it depends, it depends which way the cookie crumbles. So if we do organize data unions, and by that I mean, you know, you we we pool sort of our data production. Uh, and there are a number of data unions out there. So we pool our data production and all the data that I generate from my activity and all the data you generate and all our friends gets pooled and then packaged and then uh, negotiated on our behalf for data scraping companies, data mining companies, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, anyway, to be sold across the markets and then repackaged for whatever. Um, uh, and then we benefit from that monetarily. And we're able through that leverage to have some sort of impact on um, the sorts of things that are being advertised, uh, the sorts of... Um, the sorts of <sighs> see in this in this ubiquitous capital state where everything is transactionalized, um, we are either going to be persons, or we're going to be non fung uh, sorry fungible um, commodities. Uh, at the moment, we're actually fungible commodities. Uh, we fungible are alienated, reproducible, right? Fungible meaning um, effectively uh, identical to one another vis-a-vis -vis anonymization. So okay. uh, the theory goes right now, as far as the companies are concerned, that because we our data sets are anonymized, they are fungible. And because you can't trace them back to you and you can't trace them back to me, 
they don't have any like idiosyncrasy to them. They're just sort of like these like globules of sort of sentiment and you can package them and, and they're fungible. However, um, that's actually not true. There's a really great study that uh, did all the math required and you can actually input your own name and see like your own data set and stuff. Um, can't think of the name of that right now, but maybe we could put it in the, in the, uh, in the text of this, but um the they found that uh, like i think it's 99.98% of data sets are all traceable back down to the individual um so the 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 alien uh, the alienable aspect which is you know for a commodity to be a commodity it needs to be both alienable like you know it's no longer you i made this cup but it's no longer me. I've given it to you. I, I've alienated it from myself. But mm -hmm. the problem with data is that it it is me. <laughs> it's everything I've done. I can't really alienate it unless you're able to actually anonymize it. And that actually isn't possible. And I don't think it ever will be possible because you'll always be able to have some other countervailing uh, uh, technology. So anyway, so alienation and then uh, and anonymization and whatnot. But um, if we don't... Uh, stand up and say, hey, you know what? Oh, oh, by the way, because it's alienable, we don't have our own personhood. We have personhood, meaning, you know, uh, uh, rights. Uh, we're all we're all sort of safe under the rights of um, of the state or, what you know, whatever the line is, is since the. Um, oh, God, I'm, I'm blanking because I've written this essay so long ago, but um, but essentially um I'm sure we're mostly aware of the the history of personhood first given to sort of white property people and they could vote and they had equal protection under the law of the land. And then it was like, you know, white men who were like not property, but blah, blah, blah. And then finally it was sort of, you know, uh, uh, black men and then it was women in the United States and so on and so forth. And then it was corporations, right? Right after the 14th Amendment and black people were given personhood. Um, corporations were like, okay, so then now we have personhood too. <laughs> and uh, like some disproportionate amount, like like 80% of the uh, uh, cases that have gone through uh, Supreme Court since the 14th Amendment were passed were all about uh, corporate personhood. Only a fraction of them were about actual, um, you know, black people having personhood. Um, so anyway, of course, we understand that corporations have personhood now and you know, cocaine hippos have, you know, uh, have personhood now and rivers may get personhood. But one thing that does not have personhood are our digital selves. We just don't have any rights under the equal rights under law because we're still considered to be these fungible commodities when we're digitized. So anyway, all that is a long way to say that if we don't wake up to that. Oh, by the way, an AI is argued to have personhood because as a child of the corporation. And one of the reasons they want AI to have personhood, by the way, is so that the AI, a limited liability corporation, that's the personhood, right? You limit the liability of the managers of the company so that the corporation is going to be liable for anything that the corporation does so that you don't go to jail, the corporation as a person does, which of course it can't. Similarly, AI, if the AI does something crazy, goes off the rails, kills a bunch of people, it will be uh, liable, not the, the creators of the AI. So that's the reason why they want it to have personhood. Meanwhile, we don't have personhood when we're digital. So if we don't wake up to that fact and AI has personhood and we don't and we're just these commodities, we'll just be slaves. 
and um and i think the humanity will literally be uh relatively enslaved trafficked and that will be the um that will be you know and there ha will have to be some insurrection or not and we <laughs> and we just become these commodities and we're happy with it and i do think that you know the gen z the ironic realism the sort of like total embrace of capitalism that i've been describing is heading us in that dystopic um uh toward that dystopic end unless we sort of wake up and realize the importance of resistance and the idea of sort of creating a uh, personhood for our um our data selves so anyway so those are the two ways the cookie could crumble if it does go the other way and we do have some leverage um then it could be a kind of interesting uh, horizon potentially where you know the future of capitalism ends up being a sort of communistic um uh, version of it where we have these um data unions and we have political leverage through them yeah that's a scary the dystopia is a scary thought you know to to think that an ai with access to the internet that could like enslave me or at least really <laughs> fuck up my life in the real world is totally real. Like my buy bank online. I like so much of my logistical existence exists online, not to mention my like public utilities and all of the, you know, so, um, and just yesterday I, basically have kind of read about the new Microsoft Bing. I don't know if you've seen this AI. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's pretty scary. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's an amazing article. And, you know, everyone was making fun of the guy at Google um, who was commenting on Lambda and saying that it seemed sentient and it seemed about the age of like a teenage, you know, a teenager Mm -hmm. And they were like, oh, he's crazy. And they let him go and everyone's laughing at him. Um, you know, and then this reporter is reported like is showing like very similar uh, outputs, but even like way, way, way crazier. And the thing is, you know, it, it I was just about to write this before jumping on. It's like people can be like, it's not actually sentient. It's blah, 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 blah. But the reality is, well, two parts. One reality is that sentience it's called the, um, I don't know, the, the subjective mind problem or something like that. But it's a problem in philosophy where it basically says, we have, I have no idea if you're actually sentient. I can only say what I experience of you. Yeah, I'm not you, right? So similarly, we can't say it's not sentient if we're experiencing it as sentient. You could be like objectively it's not, but there is no objectivity when it comes to this. So that's one aspect. And then the other aspect is, in, in terms of there's no obje objectivity when it comes to our experience of something. But the other aspect is, I was just thinking about this, some of the, sometimes the most obvious things are sitting right in front of our face. Well, that's, the, that's a stupid statement. Sometimes the most hidden and strange aspects are sitting right in front of our face. So the, this, uh, these large language uh, models are gathering everything from human language, from human behavior, human sentiment, human reactions to existential dread, human reactions to conflict resolution. That's what this LLM knows and understands. Human reactions to 
survival to what meaning is. So whether or not it is experiencing its own shadow self that is totally unique to itself um, is totally irrelevant. If what it's gleaning from meaning is existential dread and um, and means to survival which prioritize uh, the individual, the self over the group, um, then that's how it's going to behave. It's like the 2001 HAL computer. Yeah. It's, it's irrelevant whether or not it's developing its own thing. And I would also challenge humans to be like, are you really developing your own shadow self? Is it not informed also by the shared language, shared meaning structure of, of reality? Um, yeah, it gets very deep very quickly. <laughs> yeah, that's basically what I'm hearing there is that the these models, these AIs, are reflecting ourselves back to us. Mm. And if they're learning on these huge language sets that are... You know, and there's a certain, like, what is published on the internet is a certain slice of humanity, right? The 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 things that it's being fed to learn on are a very, I would say even, you know, I'm reluctant to say shallow, but a, a narrow, a narrow slice of human language, right? Um, but there it is, and and then. On top of that, it's it's being throttled in certain ways by its programming to respond in mostly politically correct ways. It's, you know, I'm I'm referencing ChatGPT here um, that I've played with a bunch and and also have found the fun jailbreak prompts that you can just basically get it to rant, cussing, and and it's pretty funny. Um, but the Bing thing seems a little bit, uh, a little less stable, and a little bit more dystopian. If not, I mean, it's kind of scary, but it's also kind of funny in a sense, right? Like, like that the Bing thing like threatened somebody. It you know like the reporter published Bing's rules on his Twitter, and Bing found out and told him that Bing's rules were more important than not harming him. And I was like, whoa, that's fucking, that's some sci-fi movie shit, you know? Yeah. No, and, it is funny. It's funny that it's called Bing. I mean, it's no funny that, that our future is like being guardrailed by Google and Bing. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's terrifying. And Yahoo. I mean, it's, it's a, and, and Zoom. Yeah. I mean, we are living in fucking idiocracy. Um, it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty hilarious. Um, wow. okay. you know, one, one thing that I've been thinking about, and I, I don't hear anyone talking about, but just because you mentioned prompts, let me see if I can pull up this article. Yes. Okay. So, so actually I'll pull up this article first. Um, Nope, not that one. Anyway, there's an article in, I think it was Forbes, and it's like, you know, everyone's freaking out 
uh, about these large language models and AI and everything disrupting. And there's a lot of dystopic talk, but the reality is that these things still need our prompts and uh, they're still our little bitch and uh, nobody worry. And I was thinking about this for the last month um, and like this whole prompting thing is a farce. I mean, it's a cool farce, like we get to use it and all that, but but what I mean by farce is the notion that we have to be able to prompt, that these things couldn't function without a prompt is obviously not real. Obviously. Um, not. They, could, they could obviously build something to data scrape, analyze sentiment, and then spit out things that it knows we would already want, right? Um, mm. Or whatever for for anything, and I started looking up just before getting on this call, just to see if there's anything out there. So I wanted to just bring um, bring this, and I, this is called this is from this is a, a a piece of software called Setfit. Setfit uses rich text embeddings, which removes the need for prompts and is a very efficient framework for a few-shot learning tasks requiring a much-labeled training data compared to the existing methods for the same tasks. And, you know, they're talking about how, like, prompting is, uh, you know, not always reliable. It takes uh, manpower. Um, it's not totally efficient. Of course, we're so, you know, fixated on efficiency. So, in other words, I just bring that up to say that there's already uh, language models and AI that are promptless and being proposed and or already out there. I haven't actually tried Setfit, but uh, well, I suppose I can't try Setfit because there's no goddamn prompt, right? So I would just be- What would you be doing? <laughs> I wouldn't do anything, right? So so I've had these, and this is this is where I get a little annoyed at my, my fellows. Um, you know, the comparisons of AI to the calculator, Mm. Um, the comparisons of AI to the abacus. I'm sorry, but this is just not, this is wishful thinking. And the idea that like we still have to prompt and there's an art form to prompting. Um, number one, if if all we're left with as creative beings is the ability to prompt something with a couple sentences, that is an immense closure of the creative oh, uh, of window, right? <laughs> Already. But, but let's not kid ourselves soon we're not even going to have to prompt. And if the guy next to you, and this is an issue of, of, you know, game theoretics and, um, and multipolar traps, but if, if productivity is the name of the game and the guy next to you and everyone's like, no, 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 we're going to keep prompting because we want to keep some of the human thumbprint involved. And it's an ethical issue. But the guy next to you is like, you know what? I'm so much more productive when I just don't do anything because it does everything far more readily and efficiently than I do. And, and this guy starts spitting out all of the code and stuff in far quicker order. And he's getting all the jobs and everyone else is sitting around going like, well, you know, okay, it's a race to the bottom now. I guess I'm yeah. going to remove myself from the creative process too, so that I can increase my quote unquote productivity. Well, it's just so easy to see where this is headed. Now we could say, and I have this conversation with creatives, quote, I hate that name, but creatives, um, they almost deserve it at this point, ironically. Uh, 
you know, um, yes, like, you know, for instance, I'm scoring a movie right now, as I told you before we started this. There's now an AI that's being developed. I think it's almost at market. Maybe it's already at market where all you have to do is prompt it with moods and it spits out a score for your movie. Mm -hmm. So, okay, selfishly, you know, it's threatening something I love doing and people might just go to it, whatever. Um, and there's a whole bunch of conversation around, around that. But a director would say, okay, sure, it'll change your job. It's kind of like that old, you know, over overused, like first they came for the women and no one spoke up. But like in the creative land, right? Okay, they come for the the the, the scoring people, right? No one speaks up, right? And then they're gonna come for the for the writing. It's writing scripts now. And and uh, and and no one speaks up because the director's like, well, you'll find another job. I'm the director. I, I still get to give it prompts. I'm still going to sort of creative. You know, it's about sort of uh, uh, curating at this yeah, point. Conducting, but conducting. But the thing is that it doesn't even need you to direct it. Like at a certain point, yeah. you could just press a button, and it's like, look, make me the coolest new thing. But you don't even say that. It already knows that's what you want. And it's already producing a bunch of different, you know, movies and pieces of consumption for different segments of the population based on data scraping and, 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 you know, constraints and, um, and spitting out content and making us strictly consumers. And then when you take it to that, like that level where you completely remove the human from the creative process, um, I think that's where we have to start this conversation. Mm. It's like, okay, that's where we will be. What will life be like as a pure consumer? Um, and where we're and, humanity and, is consuming from this thing that humanity is not producing. Yes, directly. and yet, and yet, we. I'm sure some of these creatives will come up with some answer like, yes, but by my very expression of being, which the data is scraping, it's regurgitating back to me art derived from my, uh, my, the life existence, I'm living. Yeah. yeah. My very existence is the creative act. Okay, cool. But what kind of experience do we want to have on <laughs> here on earth? You know, uh, we're getting rid of so many problems that it's just going to be so boring. So we're obviously approaching some sort of creative equilibrium wherein which there's nothing left to do. Um, yeah, that's and... so interesting because it used to be that the that the the techno utopians were like, "Oh, robots are going to replace the garbage men." Right. <laughs> Only the garbage men. Right. <laughs> but now, but yeah. they never really did. Right. Like the garbage yeah. truck still's got a guy in it, and yeah. now they're like uh, coming for the writers. Yeah, you know, I, so, did you see? Yeah, it, it's interesting because I, you know, I'm, I'm admittedly pretty tantalized by the idea that AI set out on an engineering path, combined with you know graphene, would create things of. Uh, you know that that we never could that would that would resolve some of our issues that would you know that ai and chemistry you know ai set out on chemistry would start closing our materials economy loops right they would solve our trash problems and our pollution problems you know that the idea that that 
super intelligence could resolve a lot of the issues that that just intelligence created is a tantalizing thought for me. Um, and the idea that um, AI could create things that are very beautiful that we like to consume is also something that I'm not wholly opposed to. Um, but the dystopia where it becomes only that is scary. Um, well, I don't think it'll ever be only, I mean, like, cause you bring up a good point is that, you know, it won't, the, whenever anything graduates into sort of a uh, mainstream, of course, a, a new, a like socially asymmetrical sub opposition in a way pops up. So you, you, you end up with a wholly, uh, you know, largely AI generated pop landscape. And then of course the premium on sort of like tangible origins, tangible originality, like the handmade clay, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever local, um, the local thing, um, the happy chickens, you know, the, those things become more popular. However, that is very easily abstracted. All you have to do is look at urban outfitter and see the quote unquote Peruvian tapestries uh, that you can buy for $20 and you start to get a picture or like the pre-ripped jeans and you start to get an understanding of like how easily that's co-opted. Right. Wow. So, so somehow this idea of tangible origin probably is something that will only be able to sort of subsist in person where you really get to experience these things in person. And that's the thing everyone falls back to in the creative community is like, well, live shows will still be a thing and, and they may be right. Um, and I hope that they're right. Yeah, let's. I like that as a segue. Let's talk about this as the the confluence of AI and art, and you know the the thing that I saw on social media that really kind of blew up and and um, started this conversation, or at least made the reaction that I saw was there was some. I you know I I read a couple of things that said it wasn't actually ai it was some kind of uh, derivation but it was a program that you uploaded your photo to and it made avatar images from your face right the photos the are superhero thing you mean the superhero thing man it'll yeah. like paint you as an astronaut it'll paint you as a fucking avatar it, like and the thing the imagery is so cool once you see a hundred of them you see oh it's okay it's pretty redundant and it's basically just putting someone's face into a what is essentially a preformed uh, mold, but it's incredible. And the potency and the likeness and, and the, the artistry is quite amazing. Um, and it swept through social media and everybody paid their 10 bucks and had their, their portraits made. And it was super cool. And, you know, a response that I saw from a bunch of air quotes, creatives, as you've <laughs> poked at them that I kind of liked <laughs> is that, you know, they were basically, you know, every time you pay an AI to do art, you take money away from your friends who are creatives. And, um, and just that, that it's a simple sentiment. I don't need to go much further into the example there, but you know, there's, there's, you know, it almost comes back to the, like the we're replacing only the garbage men. It's like, Are you afraid that um, AI is is 
writing better music than you are? No, I'll tell you what I'm afraid of. I go to my parents. I, I may have told you the story, but I've, I've told it on my Instagram before. I've gone over to my parents' house. This is This is probably the most terrifying experience of my life. Not really. I've almost died a number of times, but still, this is up there. Gone over to my parents' house. They're watching Indiana Jones. And I'm looking at the television and I'm thinking to myself, why does this look like a shitty video game? What's going on? And I asked my parents, I'm like, do you see this? Like, why does this look like that? What's going on? Is this like a video game rendering version of Indiana Jones? What is this? And they're like, no, what are you talking about? It's a classic Indiana Jones. And I grab the remote control and I try and figure out what's going on. I go to settings and I see, oh, it's programmed for HD sports. So what's happening is the television is spitting out like 2000 frames per second, interpolating all of this sort of digital nonsense in between a film that was shot at 24 frames per second. And the result is a really shitty looking version of Indiana yeah. Jones. Yeah. Now the scary part is they didn't notice it. Uh. And that's what I'm afraid of. That's it's not even I'm afraid of it. It's a given. Yeah. My band Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, right? I can tell the difference between Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros and a band that ripped us off called Of Monsters and Men, but nobody else can. I mean, some people can. But I get friends. I get I have calls from my friends like, "Congratulations on that Apple commercial." I'm like, "Oh man. That's not us." That's this band that came along, ripped us off, and did a full-blown, like, like slick-down version of Home and other songs, really, like, immaculately produced, blah, 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 like, compression and everything's, like, perfect. We made this album, Edward Sharp and the Magnus Zeros, by hand on tape. It sounds like shit. It sounds like it's coming from a garage. And that's what I was hoping would transmit itself to the rest of, of you know, and inspire other bands. But instead, they just took a couple hey's and dun-dun-dun, the back and forth and the trumpet, dun, 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 put it all together and fucking make a fucking pop, like, regurgitation of it. Mm. And no one can tell the difference because at the end of the day, like most people just want this like essence precedes existence. You know, it's like the blueprint will suffice and all the like interesting. So, so what I'm beginning to develop is a theory that depth, human depth is actually a scaffolding built on top of a fundamental shallowness. So if you think of, shallowness as simply a ground and depth as the scaffolding built on top of it. I think that's what we're dealing with. And I think algorithms are beginning to reveal these synaptic shortcuts to our fundamental ground of essentially desi uh, enjoyment, you know, jouissance, like to be Lacanian for a second, like there is a, there is a short, a synaptic shortcuts that these algorithms are revealing and that the development of music is revealing and content and memes where it's starting to pick up like what we actually just get completely mind-numbingly uh, uh mind-numbing amount of enjoyment from mm -hmm. with without regard for uh, any of the sort of aesthetic bells and whistles or the grain or any of that it's more about these uh blueprint sort of fundamental. And I, just to describe this one more time, I was making some songs with Avicii who passed and it's very sad, but, and, and he's very brilliant, but I think this story is relevant. 
I was making some songs with him and um and he and we're making these demos, which I presume are demos because they sound like absolute demos. And what I mean by that is everything's fake, but like nakedly fake. Bad fake piano, etc. And uh and I'm like, great, when when should we like re-record? You know, when should we get real piano in? And he's like, what are you talking about? I Like, that's not, my fans don't care. Mm. It's about the song, the blueprint, the song on paper, not the, not the way that it ends up presenting itself as cool or as interesting or as handmade or porous or humanish. It's just the thing, does it cut straight to the synaptic shortcut enjoyment mechanism or doesn't it? And, um, and he knew that. And um, and I see it with my daughter, uh, and I see it with consumption generally, and that's what scares me. And so a long way of answering your question is, yeah, of course AI is going to take over scoring, because and it's not, but not because it's better, it's because most people don't care. Hmm. Like they care, but they don't like once you are satisfied, you're satisfied. What's the difference between one satisfaction and another satisfaction? Yeah, yeah it's almost they're, not, they're isomorphic. not that they Yeah, it's almost not that they don't care. It's almost that there's no difference. That's what well, there's no subjective difference between one state of awe and another state of awe. Yeah. It's like they're both a, a saturation of of capacity. Like their enjoyment is enjoyment. Yeah. And, and to, to, to draw out your scaffolding shallowness depth analogy, it's essentially that what AI is doing, it's almost like to just, to just play with it for a moment. It's almost like humans have built up this scaffolding and we put this veil over it that we call depth and we call soul and then ai is just pulling that off and was like hey you guys just built that all up you guys are kind of more simple than this you guys are a lot more simple than that and we're like oh no we're not and and that's what your buddy your buddy is saying he's like no we don't need to re-record it like people are shallow we don't need the fucking perfect like delivery yeah. like it's this people is, are more this is what they want they want to be tickled at the g spot and they don't care about all like that's it you know, yeah. like just get them, get them where it counts, and 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 hit them, and um, and you know that's a very difficult pill to swallow, uh, obviously. Um, and I think there is something to be said for the scaffolding. I think that that you know, but it, it, both in the positive and negative, I think there's an egoic quality to the to this depth scaffolding. Um, but I also think there's a beautiful aspect to it, you know, and um, and it's just. You know, it's going to be an interesting balance in the next few years that if we don't take seriously, uh, we'll obviously just trend toward uh, the the shallows and the synaptic shortcutting. But um, again, I do think that the one holdout and the one, you know, cool factor here is that the tangible origins, the asymmetric, like, a social asymmetry is always going to be attractive, no matter what it is. Um, and if the rest of the world is consuming AI art, there's going to be naturally a homogenization 
vis-a-vis median tastes. And you're going to have this subculture that's going to exist outside of that that's going to be really interesting and um, and basically live to be not that. And, um, and that's going to be cool. Yeah, that is to say that the people who like Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros also like of what's another band of monsters and men of, of monsters yeah. of monsters and men they like them they like them both uh yeah yeah a lot of them do and then a lot of them uh, don't you know like i'll see things and i'm like yes you know and it's like you know uh but but a lot of them do and um and a lot of people just want to have a good time and i wish i was one of them yeah you're kind of a stick in the mud huh <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's let's just tickle our conspiracy theory uh bone here as as we wrap, but you know, most of the most of the people that um monitor they they monitor military technological developments. They say something to the effect of if this is what is out and publicly available just imagine what is secret did you see elon's like thing yesterday or wednesday no elon as if he's my friend i never agree with elon musk but i agree with him here you know he he got on stage he's like i'm privy to everything you just referenced i'm privy to like the internal operation and development of ai and what I can tell you is that we all need to be really, really, really scared and be proactively, um, not reactively, um, uh, you know, um, constraining uh, the development and uh, and proactive about the constraints of AI. So, you know, and, and that it's an actual, you know, he's been saying this forever, that it's an existential threat. And he go, you know, and people like Zuckerberg and others are like, no, it's totally like uh, it's going to be, you know, purely great. Um, all I can say is, you know, again, if AI, if all AI knows about survival and existential dread and conflict resolution and all these sorts of things are by learning from us, we're fucked. We're fucked. Yeah, it's our baby. <laughs> it's our baby. <laughs> And 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 all those stories about like you know I know we're crazy like it's in every X Men movie and and you know uh, Marvel movie it's like humans are crazy but uh, but but you know but that's what makes us great and uh, and 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 you know at the end of the day like we're all in like a brotherhood of uh, whatever Um, that narrative does not work so well when you suddenly consider something like AI learning from humanity like if you take all those things you think we're some mix of crazy and empathetic and we have love and there's all these things that are really noble and and those are all cool to believe in until you start contemplating oh shit ai is actually going to learn from humanity is that narrative true and i think at the end of the day what ai will take away from humanity is um overwhelmingly stuff that we should be pretty terrified of Mm. Because it's going to see the shadow too. Oh yeah, and it might. I mean, the might... shadow's right in the light. It sure is. I mean, once you give it 
access to the internet, then you're going to see the whole thing. Yeah. And time will tell. That's interesting too, that, um, you know, Musk's warning there, you know, and, and what you said about, you know, his, if Musk is recommending proactive constraints to tech companies, because, you know, like the, the, 2021 budget for Google's AI subsidiary was $1.25 billion. So this, you know, having an AI is, is reserved for only the biggest tech companies in the world and, or the most highly funded startups. It's an incredibly reserved thing. And when you think about uh, the constraining body, the hypothetical constraining body in 2023 on tech companies is the government, right? Like it's the government. People aren't going to stop using Google search and people aren't going to stop advertising their businesses on Google search. So it just brings me back to that congressional interview with Zuckerberg where he told them, we sell ads, Senator. <laughs> you know, like yeah. the, you know, that, that was an example of the development of technology, having a vertical, ex, uh, vertical curve, right. It's been, it, it's gone exponential on its ability to iterate and, and change. And our governance structure is still this like ancient, relic thing that we haven't uh i would say replace but it's like i uh, my my personal view is that it's all connected and has to be totally reinvented the whole thing but um the the ancient relic that is democratic governance up against the hyper computing super intelligence of ai that is likely a gigantic fucking snowball that is fully just hurtling out of control. And we're just seeing publicly, we're seeing these little fucking snowball sized things whiz past us. And we're like, Oh look, Oh, it's just a snowball. And people are like, Oh, it's just a, it's just a snowball. And you're like, well, it's actually just a fucking fragment of the giant computational machine that is uh human technology and, and, it's a, it's a, you know, when you say, when, when Musk says we need to be proactive, I'm like, well, fuck, like, what are we, what are we going to do? You know, like, cause the senators are, you know, like the Oregon state senators are fucking boomers, man. What, like, the fuck are the boomers going to do? Well, you know, they're also in the pocket, uh, of all of these companies and, um, and, yeah, and they have very little literacy around these issues. But even if they did have literacy, um, you know, there's something there's something fundamental that you hinted at when you said that it's our baby. There's something very almost, you know, Freudian death drive about and and clearly compulsive about our desire to transcend ourselves 
And what I really mean by transcend ourselves and what we're really doing by transcending ourselves is transcending our mortality. That's what technology is really about. Media to preserve our image, medicine to preserve our bodies, the collapsing of time. Even if you look at transportation, the collapsing from, of, of, of distance and time. And, and, and that approach towards eternalization. And obviously that's, that's, that's driven, I think, uh, by a neurotic fear of death. But ironically, also, of course, in perfect ironic fashion and Freudian sort of death drive fashion, driving us toward our own demise. There's this great word in German, Alphabung, which translates loosely in English to sublation. And it's like the main idea for uh, the philosopher uh, Hegel and his idea of, you know, if you've ever heard about like synthesis, antithesis, thesis, and, and synthesis, sublation is this idea of a sort of, you could almost think of it as a success point of various conflicts and various processes that through contradiction and increase in increasing frequency, so you almost think of a waveform happening in increasing frequency until all of a sudden it reaches its limit and the frequency goes infinite and there's an infinite frequency of itself upon itself mm. and you can no longer distinguish one waveform from the other. It's just sort of this single frame, mm -hmm. a unitary mm -hmm. frame, a singularity. And that singularity... And the, the word alphabung, the reason why it's so interesting is it means simultaneously annihilation and preservation. And that's what we're doing. We're, And that's what the death drive is. It's a contraction of annihilation and preservation. And, and the reason why they're contractible is because they actually, in a lot of ways, are the same thing. Like you think, think about jam, like jelly that you put on toast. You take a bunch of strawberries, they're all different strawberries with different relations to one another, and then you you smash them up, right? And you make them all interrelated to the point where suddenly they're so related, you cannot any longer tell one particulate strawberry <laughs> from the other. They're just one single centralized fucking jam, right? And at that moment, they've annihilated themselves, right? There's no longer one strawberry and another. They have no relation because they're infinitely related now. But because of that, they're also now preserved. And that's, and you know, they're called preserves, right? And I like bringing up that notion of jam because that, that in a lot of ways is what we feel about the singularity. Once we combine ourselves with technology, mm -hmm. we will obliterate ourselves and eternalize ourselves, right? We will have transcended our mortal um, flesh. And I just think it's a compulsion that unless the, the only antidote to this, in my view, is a return of the death initiation, a confrontation with death literacy, uh, you know, being a death doula would have to be like a top 10 occupation. We'd have to really like confront our relationship with death and see if maybe the reason why some of these other, uh, you know, tribal communities never really exhibited this compulsion is because they maintained a relationship with death. Now, there's a whole other topic, and we could talk about that on a separate podcast, but um, I do think that this drive toward this 
singularity has a lot to do with a suppressed relationship to death that is manifesting as an erotic compulsion. And I don't think we're going to get any grasp on it uh, until uh, until we confront our own mortality. And I and I just don't know if that's going to happen at scale. Yeah, the motivating emotion behind any technology is imbued in it. Exactly. Right? Yeah. As Zach Stein and Schmachtenberger wrote, technology is not values neutral. It is like there are values being uh, lifted through each thing. And so you're positing that this the shadow motivation of all of this is a escape from the neurotic fear of death is a terrifying thought because the neurotic fear of death is a horrible motivating emotion and, <laughs> and as we you know like it's funny because you're like yeah, we, that's a whole nother thing that we can talk about on another podcast. I'm like, how much time do you have here? Because I've been on, a, I feel like I've been on a death kick for a number of years, uh, you know, reading Stephen Jenkinson and um, mm, yeah. recently Atul Gawande's Being Mortal. I don't know if you've read that one, but it's absolute must, incredible book. Uh, basically, the subtitle is uh, Medicine and What Matters in the End. He's a He's a physician, surgeon, and he basically chronicles how much horrible suffering we can inflict if we are so afraid of death that all we do is try to combat it like it's a fucking war yeah yeah and that's a that's the you know unfortunately that and and i don't know to what extent you know the listeners want to take this metaphor seriously but i i sort of do you know the cancer cell is defined by its refusal of apoptosis its refusal of programmed cell death. That's mm -hmm. basically what a cancer cell is, a cell that refuses to die. And instead of dying, mm -hmm. self-replicates, right? Like, and kills its host. If we can't see the sort of obvious um, uh, an analog to a humanity that refuses its own mortality and is through that refusal killing its host, the earth, um, you know, and, and, and we can, if, if you're not an environmentalist, uh, killing yourself, um, there's, there's all sorts of ways in which, in which we are, um, experiencing negative outcomes because of our refusal to really take a look at our mortality. And I think that that analog to, to apoptosis and cancer cells is, is a potent one. Yeah, I've always typically hated the uh, analogy of humans as a cancer on the earth, but the idea that uh, what makes cancer a cancer is the refusal to die and uh, our death work, as I would call it, um, is a poignant point in the direction of being a integral part of the ecology on earth as opposed to being a cancer on it is a useful i think that's a useful thing um and you know 
I remember, you know, Jordan Hall, who's a person I respect a lot, was asked what the most important thing people should be doing right now. And he said, facing their own death. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I th- I th- and I think it's more, you know, the implications are just, I really think the implications of, of doing that at scale are unimaginably uh, profound and would, and, and, and would have the most um, sort of fundamental impact on the way we think about economy, um, everything. I, I just think it would have an incredible impact on on the structure and superstructure of society. Um, so at some point in my life, that's one of the things I want to focus on. You know, is, because... is starting. A... Yeah. To to interrupt to, to be no please it 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 would have such an impact because it already is having an impact. It's the biggest driver, right? Yeah. That fear yeah. of death is like our consumptive, the neurotic consumptive thing that like so much of our behavior covers that up. And yeah, I don't think it's even debatable at this point. I mean, I, I think no. that anyone's like, no, I'm just pro-life. It's like, well, and I don't mean pro-life like I I don't want abortions. I mean, like, I'm just purely vitalistic and yeah, yeah, yeah. I never fear death. And I'm just like, you know, sprinting toward life and 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 um and I'm compulsively iterating only because uh, of some sort of incessant uh positivity. Well, you know. I like giving this, it's it's a faulty analogy, but I think it's worthwhile. Um, A good vibe, a good vibration only is a flat line. Mm. It's death. And you must have troughs and peaks. You must have valleys and peaks. You must have dynamism for life to occur. And a single vibe <laughs> is a flat line, is non-dynamic. And um, that's not fully true because if a vibration in and of itself, by definition, has sort of troughs and peaks, but you get my meaning. If you're only going to have a good vibe, which is technically just the peaks, mm-hmm. right? Or whatever the case is, like whatever the analogy is, uh, it's a flat line. And again, cancerous. And, and that's a good, you know, like pure life is death. You must have regeneration and the i the, the re in in regeneration is of course death like that is how regeneration occurs that's how you know everything that we know that is alive functions through death it is alive through death is it is vital and um so there's there's obviously something very important there mm. i couldn't agree more i think that um that feels like a nice place to leave it. And I think that um, I'm going to noodle on uh, a, a deeper death talk. I would love to revisit some Stephen Jenkinson with you. And yeah, I highly recommend no. that book, Being Mortal, Atul Gawande, for everyone listening. It's like, it seemed to me as uh, mandatory, as I will hopefully as a professional action sports athlete see my parents die and i hope for them and myself that i'll be mature enough and wise enough to walk Mm. them through and walk them home on that part of their Mm. journey and not just be 
so stricken with fear that I just pump them full of every chemotherapy I could possibly get my hands on, which is a terrifying reality in our country. That seems to be slowing down, actually. People seem to be dying in their homes a bit more these days. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, I got asked to score this documentary that I'm excited about. Not sorry, score. To write a song for this documentary uh, about this guy, Ethan. And I think the movie is called The Last Ecstatic Days, and it may or may not debut at South by Southwest. But I just bring it up because, and I don't remember the name of the doctor at the moment uh but um he was documenting his death on tiktok and i don't think he had sort of anyone around him and so a bunch of people sort of came around him to take care of him and sort of uh usher him you know in his last days and they 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 did it on a farm someone invited him to a farm in uh north carolina and a lot of people came together and sort of like facilitated this like group death doula sort of uh, wow. action over the course of his final days. And as a result, uh, this place established a 501c3 and that was an operating functioning sort of end of life alternative palliative care wow. sort of uh, retreat center thing, which I think is just so so needed and helpful and all that stuff. Stephen Jenkinson, Atul Gawande, which the book I have pulled up now, I'm going to check it out. And yeah. Yeah, man. Great talking to you. Thought provoking as always. I'm glad you're, you're on a different thread than I am, but uh, they seem to be paralleling sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It was great talking to you. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I'm definitely, <laughs> we definitely ended it on a, on a very sort of like deeply vibrant uh, note that will be fucking with me for the rest of the day in a good way. So uh, thanks. Yeah. For that. I like that. And to just like say the note at the end, it's like the, it's almost like the motivating emotions of any behavior, any scheme, any technology is something that just really needs to be closely I wouldn't say monitored as much as like seen and yeah. Awareness. Yeah. Yeah. I think about that all the time. Like, what is my impetus making this song? Why am I uh, excited to do this or that? Like, is this a desire to sustain my ego throughout time and beyond mm -hmm. my mortal flesh? Mm -hmm. Because if so, let's check yourself and yeah. let's meditate for a second because that's obviously a, a a symptomatic of this uh, refusal to, or this avoidance of a void dance, which is, you know, what I like uh, reminding myself of here. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks. All right, brother. Cheers. Okay, you guys, if you've made it to the end of this podcast, then congratulations and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. There are other Alex Ebert podcasts on this show, and if you scroll back, you will find them. They are at least as interesting as this one, maybe more. Um, but yeah, like I said in the intro, I want to invite you to check out Philosophical Coaching. I'll give you a free coaching call, 30 minutes. I won't give you the whole thing. Yesterday, we did three and a half hours with a client. It was deep dive, big breakup, lots of fucking shadow material in there, lots of things that weren't seen and... Uh, 
and lots of pain to be seen and uncovered and healed. And it's just such rewarding work and it's such an honor that people share so deeply with me. So if you need somebody to talk to, hit me up. I got your back. Uh, Thank you, Alex Ebert. Love you. And I will see you guys in the next episode. Share it around. Peace, love, and save the whales. Trick me into doing battle Calling out fake up Wanna give me rattle Wanna pull me back behind the fence with the cattle Building your lenses Digging your trenches Put me on the front line Leave me with a dumb mind With no defenses But your defenses If you can't stand to feel the pain Then you are senseless Since this I've grown up some different kind of fight And when the darkness comes Let it inside you Your darkness is shining my darkness is shining Everything in myself True I've seen a million number doors on the horizon Now which is the future you're choosing before you gon' die And I'll tell you about a secret I've been undermining Every little light in this world come from the body Say you're my love Say you're my home Till my chin back, slit my throat Take a bath in my blood, get to know me All out of my secrets All my enemies are turning into my teachers Because life's blind and no way dividing What's yours or mine when everything's shining? Your darkness is shining My darkness is shining Have Yeah.